This is Chapter 5 of Mark Twain, His Life and Work, a biographical sketch by William M. Clemens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5 His First Literary Success Read by John Greenman During the following winter, Mark Twain sojourned at the National Capital, working at odd moments upon the initial chapter of his Innocence Abroad. His bohemian habits were retained in every particular, at least the statement is warranted by a friend who writes of Mark's life at this time. His room was a perfect chaos, his table a curiosity in its way. On it could be seen anything from soiled manuscript to old boots. He never laid his paper on the table when writing, partly because there was no available space, and partly because the position so necessitated was too much for his lazy bones. With both feet plunged in manuscript, chair tilted back, and notebook and pencil in hand, he did all the writing I ever saw him do. An ordinary atmosphere would not suffice to set in motion the stream of Mark's ideas. It must first be thoroughly saturated with the vilest tobacco smoke which he puffed from a villainous pipe, said pipe having never received a cleaning, as many newspaper friends of those days can testify. He regarded this pipe as his salvation from bores, taking a ghastly delight in puffing away like a locomotive when an undesirable visitor dropped in, and eagerly watching the paleness which gradually crept over the face of the enemy as the poisonous stuff got in its work. One day, while Mark was busily engaged with his work in his dingy little room, a tall, sallow-faced man, with a miserable expression of countenance and a deep, consumptive cough, entered the room and without an invitation sat down. Turning to the visitor, Clemens said, "'Well?' The visitor said, "'Well?' "'What can I do for you?' asked the humorist. "'Well, nothing in particular. <coughs> I heard him say that you are the man that writes funny things, and as I have several hours to loaf around before the train leaves, I thought I would come around and get you to make me laugh a little. <coughs> I ain't had a good laugh in many a day, and I didn't know but what you about <coughs> accommodate me.' Clemens scowled at the man, who, thinking that the humorist was presenting him with a specimen of facial fun, began to titter. <laughs> "'That'll do first rate, Captain, but I'd uh, rather hear you talk. I can make a mouth at a man about as easy as any fellow you ever saw, and what I want is a few words from you that'll jolt me like a wagon had backed again me.' "'My friend, I am very busy today, and yes, I know all that. I am very busy myself, except that I've got about two hours to loaf, and as I said just now, I'd like for you to get off something that I can take home. Why, I can go round and get the drinks on it for a week. Won't you have a cigar? asked Clemens, desirous of learning whether the man was a smoker. No, I never could stand a cigar. The humorist smiled, and taking up his pipe, filled it up with strong tobacco, and began to puff. "'I'll keep him in here now,' 
mused the smoker, until he is as sick as a dog. I wouldn't consent to his departure if he was to get down on his knees and pray for deliverance. Nothing does <coughs> a man more good than a hearty laugh, the visitor said, coughing as a cloud of smoke surrounded his head. <coughs> Don't you think it is a little close in here? Oh, no, replied Mark, arising and locking the door. I like a little fresh air, especially when there's so much smoke in a room. Oh, there's air enough here. How did you leave all the folks? Well, Gabe, my youngest, <coughs> ain't as pert as he mote be, but all the others are steering. He ain't got no chillin', I reckon. No, the humorist replied as he vigorously puffed his pipe. Well, I'm sorry for you. There ain't nothing that adds to a man's natural enjoyment like children. That boy Gabe, what I was talking about just now, why, I wouldn't give him up for the finest yoke of steers you ever seen. You wouldn't? No, sir. Wouldn't touch him with a ten-foot pole. Would refuse him pine blank. Pardon, don't you <laughs> think it's uh, getting a little too uh, close in, uh, in here now? No, not a bit. Uh, just right. Well, I don't know the style in this place, but I'll try and put up with it. After a moment's silence, the visitor continued. When I left home, Mer—that's my wife—said uh, to me, says she, Now, say, while you're there, don't smoke that cob pipe. I wanted to follow her advice, but I put my <laughs> old fuzzy in my jeans, and now I believe I'll take a smoke. He took out a cob pipe and a twist of new tobacco known in his neighborhood as Tough Sam, whittled off a handful, filled his pipe, lighted it, placed his feet on the stove, and went to work. Mark soon began to snuff the foul air, but he was determined to stand it. The visitor blew smoke like a tar kiln. Mark grew restless. Beads of cold perspiration began to gather on his brow. Throwing down his pipe, he hastily unlocked the door and fled. On the sidewalk he met a friend. "'Hello, Clemens. What's the matter?' Twain related what had occurred. "'Oh, you mean that fellow in brown jeans?' "'Yes. You ought to have had a better sense than to light your pipe in his presence.' "'Why? Because he's a member of the Arkansas Legislature.' William M. Stewart United States Senator from Nevada, was an acquaintance of the humorist at this time, and some years since, while in a reminiscent mood, related the following. I knew Mark Twain in Washington at a time when he was without money. He told me his condition and said he was very anxious to get out his book. He showed me his notes, and I saw that they would make a great book and probably bring him in a fortune. I promised that I would stake him until he had the book written. I made him a clerk to my committee in the Senate, which paid him six dollars per day. Then I hired a man for a hundred dollars per month to do the work. I then had rooms on F Street in a house which was kept by an ancient lady. She belonged to an old Southern family whose property was lost during the War of the Rebellion. I had three large rooms on the second floor, and there was also a hall room. I was 
very anxious that sam should stick to his work until he finished it as i was almost as much interested as he i took him to live with me and gave him the hall room to sleep in he did his work in the room which i had fixed up as a study he would work during the day and in the evening he would read me what he had written after which he would stroll out about the city for recreation he usually returned to his hall bedroom about midnight and would sit up until early morning reading smoking whistling and singing his noise used to be a source of great annoyance to the landlady she was very nervous and unable to sleep when any gas was burning in the house she regarded sam as a very careless fellow and i don't think she liked him very well she came to see me one morning with her eyes swollen her appearance altogether betoking a very dilapidated condition she said she had been unable to sleep all night and that in fact for a week she had been losing sleep sam was the cause of all her trouble and she told me how he remained up all the night burning gas and creating a rumpus i informed sam of the landlady's complaint and told him he ought to go to bed at a reasonable hour and not frighten the old lady sam replied that that was all the fun he had but he promised to mend his ways and i thought no more of the matter in a week the landlady came to me again and this time with tears in her eyes she said she knew she was receiving a very handsome rent from me for the rooms and that she also was aware she could not rent them again during the season but she was compelled to ask me to give them up on account of the way mr clemens was wearing her life out i felt truly sorry for the old lady i called sam in and repeated to him what the landlady had said i told him i would thrash him if i ever heard another complaint i said i did not want to turn him out because i wanted him to finish his book he made one of his smart replies at the expense of the landlady and i told him i would thrash him then and there he begged in a most pitiful way for me not to do so and i could not help laughing seeing that he had gotten me into a good humor again he said that he would not annoy the old lady again but that he would certainly get even with me for having threatened to thrash him if it took him ten years to do so during the winter spent in washington mark wrote many newspaper letters and a large number of short humorous articles these include facts in the case of the great beef contract and the account of his resignation as clerk of the senate committee on conchology he also wrote riley newspaper correspondent which attracted a vast amount of attention and was liberally quoted in march eighteen sixty eight he sailed for san francisco for the purpose of arranging some trivial business matter on the pacific coast he was absent about five months returning to new york about august while in california and on board the steamship en route he completed the manuscript of his innocence abroad or the new pilgrim's progress meanwhile the san francisco alta had secured copyright upon mr clemens letters from the holy land general john mccomb always the friend of the struggling author finally persuaded his partners in the alta office to surrender the copyright and mark twain became the owner of the innocence abroad in new york upon his return from san francisco he resumed his newspaper correspondence and in a letter to the chicago republican dated new york august seventeenth eighteen sixty eight he devoted three columns to an account of his return voyage from california 
he carefully reviewed the matter of california immigration and the changes that had taken place in san francisco since his previous visit he described the panama canal and vividly portrayed life and character in central america here is an amusing extract from his letter possibly you know that they have a revolution in central america every time the moon changes all you have to do is to get out in the street in panama or aspinwall and give a whoop and the thing is done shout down with the administration and up with somebody else and the revolution follows nine-tenths of the people break for home slam the doors behind them and get under the bed the other tenth go and overturn the government and banish the officials from president down to notary public then for the next thirty days they inquire anxiously of all comers what sort of a stir their little chivalry made in europe and america by that time the next revolution is ready to be touched off and out they go from this letter it appears that he had visited hartford where in the golden future he was to take up his permanent residence in closing the letter to the chicago republican he wrote i have been about ten days in hartford and shall return there before very long i think it must be the handsomest city in the union in summer it is the moneyed center of the state and one of its capitals also for connecticut is so law-abiding and so addicted to law that there is not enough room in one city to manufacture all of the articles they need hartford is the place where the insurance companies all live they use some of the houses for dwellings the others are for insurance offices so it is easy to see that there is quite a spirit of speculative enterprise there many of the inhabitants have retired from business but the others labor along in the old customary way as presidents of insurance companies in eighteen sixty eight sixty nine clemens was living at the everett house in new york city having completed his innocence abroad he looked about for a publisher his visit to hartford early in august was for the purpose of conferring with a publisher there but he had met with but little encouragement he next tried a dozen publishing houses in new york but in vain he sent his manuscript to other publishers in boston and philadelphia with like success somewhat disheartened he laid the book away in his room one day he was entertaining the late albert d richardson in his apartment in a self-disgusted mood he handed richardson his manuscript to see if his friend thought it so irredeemably bad richardson read it pronounced it very clever full of the extravagant drollery which the american people relish and expressed his astonishment that any publisher of intelligence and experience should have declined it you can't be any more astonished than i am remarked clemens dryly these publishers have astonished as much conceit out of me as a long siege of seasickness richardson who had published several books through the american publishing company said that he was going to hartford 
that he would take the manuscript with him, and that he was sure the company would be glad to publish it. He kept his promise and placed the manuscript in the hands of Mr. Bliss, then secretary of the company, who was pleased with it. But some of the other officers and directors were averse, and made so many objections that Bliss finally declared that he would publish the volume on his own account. This caused some of the others to yield, and Innocents Abroad was issued, but under protest, and many misgivings as to its financial success. The result is well known. The book made Mark Twain famous. The sale, including pirated editions, reached 200,000 copies. The American company cleared in the neighborhood of $75,000 by the publication. Mark was crazed with joy. He wrote to his old friend Captain Bixby of the steamboat Paul Jones, Thirty tons of paper have been used in publishing my book Innocence Abroad. It has met with a greater sale than any book ever published except Uncle Tom's Cabin. The volumes sell from $3 to $5, according to finish, and I get one-half the profit. Not so bad for a scrub pilot, is it? How do you run Plum Point, a son-of-a-gun of a place? I would rather be a pilot than anything I ever tried. The London Saturday Review of October 8, 1869, reviewed Innocence Abroad at great length, along with other volumes, as a book of travel. The review was written most seriously, and one could imagine the delight of the humorist in reading this tribute to his power. In fact, the review so amused Mark Twain that he himself wrote a long burlesque on the Saturday Review criticism, in which he said, To say that Innocence Abroad is a curious book would be to use the faintest language, would be to speak of the Matterhorn as a neat elevation, or of Niagara as being nice or pretty. Curious is too tame a word wherewith to describe the imposing insanity of this work. There is no word that is large enough or long enough. Let us, therefore, photograph a passing glimpse of book and author, and trust the rest to the reader. Let the cultivated English student of human nature picture to himself this Mark Twain, as a person capable of doing the following uh, described things, and not only doing them, uh, but with incredible innocence uh, printing them calmly and tranquilly in a book. For instance, he states that he entered a hairdresser's in Paris to get shaved, and the first rake the barber gave with his razor, it loosened his hide and lifted him out of the chair. This is unquestionably exaggerated. In Florence he was so annoyed by beggars that he pretends to have seized and eaten one in a frantic spirit of revenge. There is, of course, no truth in this. He gives at full length a theatrical program, seventeen or eighteen hundred years old, which he professes to have found in the ruins of the Colosseum, 
among the dirt and mold and rubbish. It is a sufficient comment upon this statement to remark that even a cast-iron program would not have lasted so long under the circumstances. In Greece he plainly betrays both fright and flight upon one occasion, but with frozen effrontery puts the latter in this falsely tame form. We sidled towards the Piraeus. Sidled, indeed. He did not hesitate to intimate that at Ephesus, when his mule strayed from the proper course, he got down, took him under his arm, carried him to the road again, pointed him right, remounted, and went to sleep contentedly till it was time to restore the beast to the path once more. He states that a growing youth among his ship's passengers was in the constant habit of appeasing his hunger with soap and oakum between meals. In Palestine he tells of ants that came eleven miles to spend the summer in the desert and brought their provisions with them. Yet he shows by his description of the country that the feat was an impossibility. He mentions, as if it were the most commonplace matter, that he cut a Moslem in two in broad daylight in Jerusalem with Godfrey de Bouillon's sword, and would have shed more blood if he had had a graveyard of his own. These statements are unworthy a moment's attention. Mr. Twain, or any other foreigner who did such a thing in Jerusalem, would be mobbed and would infallibly lose his life. But why go on? Why repeat more of his audacious and exasperating falsehoods? Let us close fittingly with this one. He affirms that in the mosque of St. Sophia at Constantinople, I got my feet so stuck up with a complication of gums, slime, and general impunity that I wore out more than two thousand pair of bootjacks getting my boots off that night, and even then some Christian hide peeled off with them. It is monstrous. Such statements are simply lies. There is no other name for them. Will the reader longer marvel at the brutal ignorance that pervades the American nation? In another place, he commits the bald absurdity of putting the phrase tarnons into an Italian mouth. In Rome, he unhesitatingly believes the legend that St. Philip Neri's heart was so inflamed with divine love that it burst his ribs, believes it wholly, because an author with a learned list of university degrees strung after his name endorses it. Otherwise, says the gentle idiot, I should have felt a curiosity to know what Philip had for dinner. Our author makes a long, fatiguing journey to the Grotto del Cane on purpose to test its poisoning powers on a dog. 
got elaborately ready for the experiment and then discovered that he had no dog a wiser person would have kept such a thing discreetly to himself but with this harmless creature everything comes out he hurts his foot in a rut two thousand years old in exhumed pompeii and presently when staring at one of the cinder-like corpses unearthed in the next square conceives the idea that maybe it is the remains of the ancient street commissioner and straight away his horror softens down to a sort of chirpy contentment with the condition of things we have thus spoken freely of this man's stupefying simplicity and innocence but we cannot deal similarly with his colossal ignorance we do not know where to begin and if we knew where to begin we certainly should not know where to leave off we will give one specimen and one only he did not know until he got to rome that michael angelo was dead and then instead of crawling away and hiding his shameful ignorance somewhere he proceeds to express his pious grateful sort of satisfaction that he is gone and out of his troubles no the reader may seek out the author's exhibitions of his uncultivation of himself the book is absolutely dangerous considering the magnitude and variety of its misstatements and yet it is a textbook in the schools of america even in our own country innocence abroad had its curious adventures in pennsylvania a rural clergyman sadly returned the volume to the book agent with the remark that the man who could shed tears over the tomb of adam must be an idiot End of chapter five read by john greenman